Hi, I'm Jim Pentecost, the producer of Pocahontas. And this is Mike Gabriel, co-director. And this is Eric Goldberg, the other co-director. And this is a reunion of the three of us looking at this film that we had such a great time making, which was released in 1995. And we were released in 1996. <laughs> um, but anyway. It, it, was, it was a great experience. We got to work with a lot of very, very wonderful people on this show. And uh, hopefully uh, you agree when you see these results. One of the things about Pocahontas that was really a departure for Disney was that it was the first film, really, that did not have a happily ever after uh, ending. And uh, Mike and Eric, who directed it, were very much supported by the studio in terms of making sure that ending was preserved. The old sea dog, Captain Surprisingly, it wasn't mentioned that much on its initial release either. No, it wasn't made much out of. Only the observant critics. <laughs> Pocahontas was the first animated film that was based on a character that really existed and had a history that we had to deal with. One thing I like about Wiggins's character is that he says things that are very blunt and insulting, but in the nicest possible way. And these uh, bright colors on the ship are actually the uh, authentic, actual colors that were on the ships that they sailed on. We, we stuck with the authenticity. We've got some uh, great effects animation here by uh, effects wizard Don Paul and his team. Really uh, kick-started the movie. This was uh, Roy Disney helping us uh, uh, with all of his experience with his yacht racing, Pie Wackett, and all, uh, he's, he's a great racer. Um, but he told us that the waves do not break on the ship. That's not the scariest part. The scariest thing is when you go up the wave, down the backside, and hit the bottom at the bottom of the back of the wave. So I'm sure people look at that as kind of an odd movement, but we learned that's where the real bang comes from when you're out there in the big waves. Originally, when, we, when the movie was written and storyboarded, we opened in the world of Pocahontas, in the New World, but it was felt that we needed to see uh, John Smith leave England uh, and sort of the accident waiting to happen or the conflict waiting to happen. And so we went back and added this sequence and also added a song that was inspired by some of Mike Gabriel's uh, uh, words and work. Research, yeah, when glory, God, and gold was sort of their doctrine they set out to, to achieve. We had a key line in this sequence that really pointed out accident waiting to happen. As the characters talk about what they want in the new world and talk about killing Indians, John Smith says, you know, what's going to be different about this world than all the other worlds I've seen? And then you cut to the titles and you see how beautiful and wonderful it is and what's coming to it. And uh, that was really the turning point. 
the uh, pug dog, Percy, that uh, Governor Ratcliffe is carrying. I just want everyone to know it's historically accurate. They used to wear those little collars, you know. <laughs> they had the little bells on, and we did all that research, and, you know, I, I hope people appreciate it. Made none of that up. One of the interesting things about this film is that the characters of Percy and the characters you'll see later on who are the animal characters, they don't speak. They just do their animal sounds, but they don't have dialogue, which makes it difficult or more challenging to have their personalities come out. And the character of Radcliffe is an amalgam of a number of different people, but there really was. Wasn't there really yes, a Radcliffe? Yes, there was. He was the second governor the of Jamestown. Yeah, but he had a better name than the first governor. I think the first one was Ralph, Ralph Smith or something. <laughs> so, Radcliffe fit. A pile of gold. Build me a big house. And if We were going in a more comedic direction. Yeah. I remember it was a Radcliffe sequence. Ratcliffe's arrival in the New World. Like when he got on the ship, the whole ship tilted. He was such a big, fat guy. That's right. And we pitched it, and it went down very, very well with the executives. And we put it on reels, and they hated it. <laughs> and I we... think it was a conscious decision at that point to go with the essential seriousness of the story and look for the humor where we could. But we couldn't make fun of it in a way because it was too important what we were dealing with. It was a little bit of uh, CGI on the uh, over-the-ship shot as we uh, translated through the clouds. These are nice shots to mention. Our art director, Mike Giamo, did a brilliant job. And our head of layout, Rasul Azadani, as well. Christy Maltese and her team did a beautiful job on the backgrounds. We had a lot of big trees in this movie, didn't we? I think one reason we did is because, really, uh, Rasul Azadani really wanted to push scale. And I think he did a magnificent job, which really emphasizes the beauty of the surroundings compared with sometimes the tininess of the people in the shots. And this sequence really shows the Native American uh, families and their society as we see Powhatan returning from some sort of trip or mission that they have been on. And it was very important, especially to us, to show not a group of Native Americans who were just fighters, but who actually had families and social systems and grandparents and children and the magic, you know, that was part of their society. We did use live-action reference on this film um, for the human characters. It's kind of a tradition in Disney animation. We also use Native American consultants in terms of the language. Uh, there's a lot of Native American phrases that are taken from the Powhatan, the Algonquin Indians of the time. We did a lot of historical research. Mike, Eric, and I and the team went to Jamestown a number of times, spent time talking to people there in order to give the film an authentic uh, feeling and uh, to be historically accurate as much as possible when you're doing a film. And we haven't been uh, criticized by any, uh, anyone on the uh, authenticity of all the costumes, the way they live, the, the way the, their homes, their, you know, all the bowls and every, every little table and chair. We're trying to capture some of the Native American uh, belief and afterlife and, and your spirit becomes a part of nature when you die. 
And uh, so we tried different ideas for the mother of Pocahontas. The first idea was a bright star in the morning sky, I actually called her bright star in the morning sky. Pocahontas would get up early and talk to the bright star, but um, I think because Lion King wanted to use the star idea, we sort of shifted over to the idea of colored leaves as being the spirit of the mother. Turned out to be a better idea. This is one of my favorite sections, just because it's, it's stunning in its uh, boldness, how far she's diving. It is a cartoon. And also the uh, comedy, I think, is some of the best comedy um, between Miko and Flit in the picture. They are just great characters, uh, the hummingbird and the raccoon, and they have great personalities that uh, the animators who did them imbued these characters with. Uh, neither of them speak, and there's so much of the humor that has to be gotten from uh, the animation and yeah. the expression. And... Uh, the animators really brought a lot of this humor to it. We really kind of just set the table for them, and they just uh, put, the, put the meal on it for us. And it was difficult, because this is essentially a serious story. And to find the moments of humor uh, that are not uh, shtick, you know, and not having dialogue was, was a real challenge. Uh, we actually went back in after, you know, and kept doing passes just to get more comedy bits. Uh, to give the film a, uh, you know, a more humorous tone wherever we could without uh, sacrificing the integrity of the film. Each of the characters actually had a pretty clear purpose in the story in terms of their characters. Um, you know, Flit was Pocahontas's self-appointed protector um, and uh, feisty for his size. Miko uh, was kind of the um, animal garbage disposal. He would eat anything and uh, constantly mischievous. And uh, Percy was his antithesis, snooty, stuck up, and well-bred. And it was really putting all those characters into play with one another uh, that really brought out a lot of the humor. Pocahontas is essentially a father-daughter story. And both of the characters, uh, Powhatan and Pocahontas, were very strong-willed. They loved each other, but they looked at the world differently. And one of the things we tried to do, which is, I think, a reflection of the historical accuracy of Pocahontas, she was a person who was able to look at the world differently and affect how other people looked at the world. And the struggle in this, of the conflict throughout this film, is to get people to look at each other, not through stereotypes or what they think they are, but what they really are. You know, Pocahontas is such a dramatic story with a very, very uh, heavy, sad ending. The tone was probably more, um, a little more dramatic and heavy than any we've ever done before at Disney. So. We still had to put the Disney fun and, and light characters throughout to um, uh, just to lighten it a little bit. And this is a good example of one that uh, uh, not comedic scene going on, but you bring the characters in to entertain along the way and to reflect what they're talking about in a visual comedic way. So it's a comedic echo of what they're talking about down below. At least you want it to be comedic. I think this gag right here could have been funnier. We should have made it very clear that that bowl goes over Flit. I don't think people really see it because two characters are in the show. We should have done a close-up on Flit, but I'm um, right here. Boom. And most people, that's happening so fast and in a two-shot and nobody really saw it. So when he pops up here, never gets a laugh because they don't know where he came from under that bowl. My theory, anyway. Pocahontas, come with me. 
You are the daughter of the chief. I have to say, this is my favorite shot in the entire movie in terms of the stunning layout, the stunning color choices. You know, we were really trying to uh, reflect how beautiful this new world looks and wouldn't it be a shame if it got destroyed. Uh, and to that end, I think Mike Giamo and Rasul and, uh, and Christy Maltese did a fabulous job. And the uh, famous presenting of the necklace scene where um, we introduced sort of the symbol of the, of the uh, relationship with Pocahontas and her people. And um, this sort of represents her, her sort of being laden with uh, having to be a part of her community and people when she wants to be free and do what she wants, but she's got responsibilities. So later when the necklace is broken, it indicates that um, she's broken her sort of relationship with her people and her father. And it's also uh, was her mother's necklace. Yes. And so it has even more significance when her father gives it to her. The water's always changing. Very important to the story. Flowing, but people, I guess, can't live like that. We all must One of the things about this particular project um, was the collaboration with Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz, who wrote the songs. And this song, just about around the river bend, was one of the top first three songs that were written for the for the the film and uh, I remember you always love this one Jim I do this is my favorite other than colors of the wind and it was a difficult song to animate actually I mean into storyboard to tell the story and uh, I think it uh, is really beautifully done I like the fact too that it ends on a somewhat serious note too um, you certainly get the impression that she's uh, you know, uh, very, very um, adept at uh, navigating her way through uh, through the environment and uh, very comfortable with it and uh, likes all the challenges like going down the falls and uh, rowing through the rapids. But then she has to come to a um, serious point, which is, should I marry the guy? And which course should I choose? The singing voice of Pocahontas uh, is a Broadway actress, Judy Kuhn. And uh, I remember when we were looking for a voice to match Irene Bedard, who did the speaking voice, uh, the day we put the two voices together from the dialogue to the song, and that it was a seamless match. Perfect. Is all my dreaming. What had happened was that Judy Kuhn actually recorded the demo version of Colors of the Wind, uh, and, you know, we kept saying, gee, nobody can knock it out of the park like Judy. And when we put the two voices together, it was like they were made for each other. One of the things that this sets up now are the two choices that Pocahontas has. One, does she go with the sort of steady choice, the conventional choice, or does she take the more risky path? And as you can see, we know that this character has chosen to take the more risky path. Here we enter the magical world of Grandmother Willow. Definitely takes her into a special realm, kind of a secure environment, just uh, enveloping uh, their little private room. One of the things about the Native American world is spirits embodied in nature. And uh, this was dramatized by the Grandmother Willow. Morning, child. 
I was hoping you'd visit. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Joe Grant is, um, he wrote Dumbo. Uh, he designed the Wicked Queen in uh, Snow White. Uh, he conceived Lady and the Tramp. That's who Joe Grant is. Um, and he also came up with a lot of the uh, animal comedy that is in the movie as well for us, uh, particularly Nico. Still got the youngest, freshest mind in the game. If you'll notice that stump area that she's sitting on, that, that pedestal is actually the original Grandmother Willow. Or actually, it was like a giant oak that Joe Grant, he came up with an idea that that would be the, uh, the old Willow would um, know Pocahontas, remember Pocahontas from modern time, and we would go back in time. Actually, he had a little seed caught in one of the rings, and a little bird was pecking on it, and that kind of brought his memory back about what, oh, yeah, Pocahontas, 400 years ago. It was a cute idea, but it was a little too, uh, not enough of a, of a shape or a persona, and we wanted to make it a larger environment, so we um, kind of put the stump and then added the whole willow tree around it, an offshoot. How am I ever going to find it? <laughs> Your mother asked me the very same question. Another reason for the grandmother willow character is we needed to have somebody for Pocahontas to talk to and confide in, because she really couldn't talk to her father. She could somewhat to her best friend, Nakoma, but to get advice and guidance, uh, and the elders are a very important part of uh, Native American uh, society, and the Grandmother Willow embodied that wisdom to help give her direction. I don't understand. We were very fortunate to have the actress Linda Hunt play Grandmother Willow. Linda is not only a dramatic actress, but uh, she also catches the comedy or the sense of humor that we wanted to give to this character. Which was one thing that actually connected her to Pocahontas. We saw Pocahontas had a sense of humor, and uh, we felt that that kind of connected her in that kind of way, as well as the uh, spiritual way. I remember a stupid compliment I gave Linda Hunt at the recording session, her first session. I don't know why I said it, but after a great couple of lines she had read, I said, gosh, your voice sounds great. It sounds so old. <laughs> I'm sure she as loves you forever after. It's one of those backup, erase, erase. I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I had I had one from Linda Hunt. You know, I wanted her to take another line a separate, a, a different way. And I said, so, hey, you know, I'm on the talk back. I go, hey, Linda, that was great. Can you try it this way? And she goes, if it was great, why do you want me to try it another way? So, <laughs> yeah, she nailed me. <laughs> well, one of the things about animation is you want to cover it as many ways as you can so that when you go into the, to make the picks, you have as many choices as you can have because you don't want to have to bring somebody back uh, to record yet again. And you're splicing their lines in with actors that were recorded two months ago and trying to make it all tonally match. So it sounds like they're talking in the same room. It's a crazy way to make a movie, but that's how we do it. So Ratcliffe was played by David Ogden Stiers, and Wiggins was also played by David Ogden Stiers. So we have a scene where he's talking to himself. Popular man. His uh, British accents are particularly good, and uh, I, uh, I tried the uh, tried-and-true test, which was asking somebody who had no idea. Uh, when we first had David in the booth to record uh, Ratcliffe lines. The sound engineer was British, and so I asked him after a couple of takes, so do you think he sounds uh, British? 
And the guy said, what, you mean he isn't? So, <laughs> that means that David nailed it. Look, look, Radcliffe's knickers for all I care, just as long as I got off this stinking boat. Come on, man. We didn't come all this way just to look at it. One thing I feel proud about that we did achieve on this film is uh, it's very rare to get sections of a film with no dialogue and you just let the mood carry it and the visual carry it. And uh, this is one of those sections that that works without a single word of dialogue as they enter and you just let them absorb the new world. Glenn Keane boarded this section and Glenn's boards usually cut for cut stay exactly as they are boarded. Well, it's a common thing in live action films to cut back and forth between, you know, actors and close-ups, going closer, going closer, reaction shot closer. But it's very unusual to do that in animation. And I will also say that the scoring that Alan Menken did... Beautiful section, yeah. ...really sort of elevated that um, uh, and made it very dramatic. I remember playing that section for some people without the score, and it didn't really hold. I remember uh, them yes. saying, oh, yeah, there's nothing happening. As soon as the score was put underneath it, it made all the difference in the world. He just played their emotions perfectly. John? What are you doing up there? It's very difficult to convince anybody that we don't need dialogue on every square inch of the film. And uh, so uh, I'm pleased that we communicated so much uh, in pantomime. Um, it draws more out of the audience as they're watching. It's not all, uh, it's not all handed to them. It lets them pull something out of themselves and look into the eyes of the characters and feel what they're feeling. One thing I love about this sequence is um, when Miko uh, goes out to uh, meet John Smith, uh, it's clear that Pocahontas is spying on him, and uh, she likes what she sees. He's, she's interested in him, but Miko blows it with one little gesture. Dave Zabosky, the guy who animated this scene of uh, John Smith, uh, Nick Ranieri animated Miko, when he first produced this biscuit, it had a happy face drawn on it. I, <laughs> I told him to take it off, please. Yes, we had to be very vigilant. <laughs> I think we caught everything that the animators tried, didn't we? Like they said some of the Indians in the crowds had cell phones and that's right, <laughs> fishnet stockings. Yes, yeah, they did. I think I you heal. caught them all in color models. <laughs> <laughs> We're no fun. <laughs> Remember, we had uh, Miko just a little more uh, cartoonish before, and we sort of went back to the uh, raccoon-like behavior. Mm-hmm. One thing we tried to do in this. Film is really integrate stylistically all of the elements. So the characters have an angular design to them, and the uh, backgrounds are crisp and clean, and even the special effects animation has a certain look to it, like the smoke here, that actually fits in with the rest of the design. Originally, this uh, was intended as the first scene. And we kept it in the movie, but we put it in this place instead. And the reason we moved it is because we felt we really didn't want to start the movie with a scene where the Native Americans looked like they were on the attack. You know, they're very, very suspicious of the uh, British coming to their shores, and, uh, and they're saying we have to stop these invaders. And we just thought, 
Well, that's a heck of a way to start a movie <laughs> when we're in sympathy with the Native Americans. And so it was switched to show the British arriving first and, as Stephen Schwartz said, the accident waiting to happen. You know, I love the power and strength of uh, Russell Means's performance in this movie. I, I can, it's one of those roles where you can't picture anyone else on the planet having played that part. In the name of His Majesty King James I, and do so name this settlement Jamestown. Bravo, bravo, beautifully spoken, sir. Time for a little comic hijinks. <laughs> ah, yes, comic relief. Great animation here by uh, Chris Buck and uh, and Nick Ranieri. I remember it well. This was kind of a long scene <laughs> for for uh, animation. We let it play out sort of in one shot. Coming up here, but I'll take right credit here, for yeah. one joke. Nick came up with all this stuff, and it was really funny. And he didn't he didn't have the out. The out was. Miko takes the last cherry. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your idea? Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Once again, the animals sort of parallel the story that's going on in the, in the human world. Uh, Conflict of cultures, yeah. One of the things that was historically accurate, which is in the number... Uh, musical number Mine, 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 is the British actually thought, the English actually thought there was gold in Virginia, and they came to dig it up. As we now know, there was no gold in Virginia, but that was a big motivating factor for their... Uh, this was an, an investment company that had people back in England pay money so that they would go off and uh, make their investment worth more by finding gold in the New World. But uh, by sticking to that fact, I mean, we might have suffered a little bit um, in the fact that we didn't have the villain, Ratcliffe, really going directly at the heroine Pocahontas in any way. He was after gold, not, nothing that really uh, was directly relating to Pocahontas. So uh, by being a little more factually accurate, we might have sacrificed a little bit of the dramatic uh, like uh, point, like a sharper point on the dramatic relationship of those two. Well, it is true that neither the, in this film, Pocahontas and Ratcliffe never really have a scene together. Nope. Only at the end, at when, the end. When, he's on, when she's on the cliff and Ratcliffe shows up with his army and the, he's about to shoot her father, fi you, you'll notice the movie really takes off dramatic. I mean, you're really riveted at that point, hopefully, um, because there's finally a relationship between Ratcliffe and Pocahontas. Some people uh, felt that Ratcliffe was not a strong enough villain for a Disney movie, and it was really our thought that, uh, well, Ratcliffe really wasn't the villain. Prejudice was the villain to which Ratcliffe you know, fell prey. Um, but it was really the concept that was the villain in the movie and, and uh, not all put on the, uh, in the person of, of one vile individual. One of the things that Stephen Schwartz did so brilliantly in the lyric from Mind, My Mind is to capture uh, Ratcliffe's uh, inner uh, thoughts about being, of what he hoped to gain by succeeding in the new world. Uh, that he would essentially replace the king um, and that he would be so honored because he achieved uh, uh, wealth and victory in the new world. And that's how you curry favor with the king and rose in society. He's mine! And John Smith is out in many ways, much like Pocahontas, just 
enamored in the land and the beauty of what he sees. Uh, it was an incredible opportunity uh, to see a world that was untouched, essentially. And that we show Smith there uh, abusing nature and not blending with it uh, intentionally. I think uh, this is the first time you hear Mel Gibson getting to sing, open his vocal cords, pipe a few. I think he did a very good job. He did great. Um, there was actually uh, originally a different ending animated for this song, uh, and we tried it at preview, and it was changed. And it's interesting. Um, Ed Gombert had actually conceived it, who was one of our great story artists. And at the very end, uh, as you see them digging and digging and digging this enormous mound of dirt, um, Ed had two double cuts. And we cut out and saw the devastation. And it, it practically looked like Hiroshima. They had just leveled the place with this mound of dirt in the middle of it and all the trees cut down. And when we saw it in preview, the audience went, ugh. And to my mind, that's the reaction I wanted, <laughs> you know? Uh, we really did want to show that this was horrible devastation, but, you know, I think we went for a softer ending here than we could have had, you know, going in on Ratcliffe's face instead. This is one of the most, I think, beautiful scenes in, in animation. Uh, and it's an example of what Mike and Eric had talked about previously about a scene that has no dialogue and uh, is completely carried by the facial expressions of the characters, which is extremely difficult to do in animation. It's quite a triumph, I think. Beautiful scoring Alan did here to reflect their feelings. But this is the, the quintessential moment of the two characters who finally come face to face, and it's sort of the Romeo and Juliet moment of our film when they when they see each other and uh, are definitely... For Pocahontas, she's, been, she's seen John Smith, but it's the first time John Smith has seen or laid eyes on a, on a Native American woman. And he likes her. Actually, Glenn had found the live-action model for that scene, uh, I think, in, her, in his karate class, of all places. And uh, she, did, she could do that kind of spider walk, and he thought that would be great for Pocahontas. You always love coming up with behavior or m uh, movement that's unique to each character, reflects what they're all about. This was kind of, we would argue about the, uh, would that wick have stayed lit when he jumps through the waterfall? <laughs> oh, we probably went around for months on that one. I think it would have. I think it was just such a great moment, aiming the gun and then lowering it. And that hair, it's a character unto itself. Uh, I remember we were on a press junket uh, with Pocahontas and with Toy Story at the same time in New York, and John Lasseter saw this sequence and, and uh, just said it was, it was a cinema moment, which was a great compliment. And I have to say, boarded by Glenn Keane and animated principally by Glenn and John Pomeroy on John Smith. And, you know, it's reflective, actually, of, of the... Um actual Pocahontas' effect on the, on the two worlds. She, she did induce all the uh, settlers to lower their weapons and to sort of make friends and get along. No, wait, wait, please. This was actually 
Glenn's first animation of Pocahontas. Uh, it was a test sequence that he had done to show her going through the trees. Don't run off. So here we have the two characters who finally come face to face and are speaking to each other. And one of the issues we grappled with for a very long time was the issue of language and how do they understand each other and how do we get them to converse with each other. And uh, we started it off very slowly, which po we can see Pocahontas not really understanding John Smith. Uh, but then the magic of the leaves and the magic of the wind is the transition that we used to get to the place where the two characters could actually speak to each other. And the recalling of the listen with you know, the listen to your heart song right. from Grandmother Willow that we had heard earlier. But again you can see the use of, of the of the leaves and the wind as a way of connecting them. Who are you? And there's something also about Pocahontas at first being afraid, but then trusting something instinctual about John Smith that she trusted. I think there really is a nice um, screen relationship between these two we've achieved with this film. They're, they really do feel like they're relating to each other in a pretty cool way. And the other way we handle the language issue is we get to a point in that scene and then we cut away. So when we come back to them later on, and they're talking, it doesn't seem quite so awkward, and the audience takes that leap of faith with us. Because in reality, they couldn't really talk to each other, but that would make for not a very interesting film. Uh, we have uh, the Ben and Lon characters, uh, Ben voiced by uh, Scottish comedian Billy Connolly, and Lon voiced by Joe Baker, who was a music hall comedian. And they kind of made a good team together. It is very difficult to do a drama. This is a drama, primarily a drama. And you will have seen many films since this film was made trying to come out and be more dramatic or drama-like and not as successful, at least on first release. So I feel good that we've done a very difficult task. We've, we've taken a historical character in a, a very dramatic story and um, made it maybe uh, something that reaches people. You idiot! One thing I might mention this, the, uh, the film benefited from was that uh, both John Pomeroy, who uh, animated John Smith, and Tom Cito, our head of story, were both history nuts. And so they really saw to it that there was a lot that was historically accurate. Uh, John Pomeroy, uh, would bring in models, like uh, the model for the cannon that they were wheeling out on the Susan Constant. And he knew how a, um, how a uh, rifle at that time would work, uh, you know, one that had a wick, um, and, uh, and brought in models for us. Shut up! Shut up, you fools! In Jamestown, we had that demonstration of that rifle, too, and <laughs> did the full process for us. Yeah. Get the rest of the cannons ashore and finish building the fort! Aye, Governor! Well, the issue of violence in the film was always something we were aware of. Uh, obviously, uh, the conflict between the Native Americans and the English was at times very violent, and we were aware of that. We wanted to make it dramatic, uh, but we obviously didn't want to just show a lot of uh, bloodshed. I think we managed to do that 
fairly well. You know, we don't show rivers of spurting blood, but we don't flinch at the fact that, you know, these guns are dangerous. <laughs> and uh, and that was a nice first step in the uh, escalation of planting the idea of violence is going to happen in this movie, and there is going to be a, sh a kill later, you know, someone's going to be killed. So just a shot in the knee just to sort of get you ready that this movie is going to have that sort of violence. And also, quite frankly, to, to get the G rating, which we wanted for this film, uh, there is a, only a level of violence that is acceptable. I think we pushed the boundary of it. Uh, we didn't want to, you know, scare our young audiences. At the same time, uh, this is a serious uh, subject matter. Pocahontas. So while uh, this violence has taken place, the skirmish, Smith and Pocahontas are away from it and getting to know each other. And there's Miko, hungry again. It always got a laugh when he checked the hand and there was nothing in it. Here, let me show you. The introduction of the way to say hello, of course, uh, was shaking hands, uh, which was the English way. Pocahontas will teach John Smith how to say hello in the way of the Powhatan Indians. This is how we... Here's the authentic Powhatan greeting that we learned from uh, historians and Native American advisors. What was that one called? The Wingapo. Yeah. Shirley Little Dove McGowan. Uh, Shirley Little Dove McGowan, who, was, who consulted with us uh, primarily about uh, Native American dress, but also for... Um, you know, language. You can see John Smith has a little ways to go to win over Flit. A little suspicious. Now we introduce the idea, the compass, into the film, which plays a pivotal part later. Compass works on a number of different levels. It's not just uh, literally to find direction, but it helps Pocahontas to find direction in her life. Also something she's never seen before. It tells you how to find your way when you get lost. But it's all right. I'll get another one in London. London. This particularly was a very, very difficult scene to write and execute because on the one hand, John Smith feels that he is opening up to Pocahontas all the great things that the British are going to bring them, and Pocahontas is confused because she thinks things are just fine as they are. And just as they're getting to know one another, it all starts to go sour. You think that only because you don't know any better. Wait a minute, don't take I mean, Pocahontas was really, in her society, somebody who was capable of bringing both sides together. And that's really what we wanted to reflect of her personality in the movie. You're a savage. Just my people. No, listen, that's not what I meant. Let me explain. Let go. No, I'm not letting you leave. Yep, he keeps putting his foot in it. And then uh, eventually Pocahontas does show him the way um, that she feels about things in Colors of the Wind. What you mean is... This song, Colors of the Wind, was the first song written for the film. And it actually helped define the heart and soul of the of the movie. I guess it must be so. When we first uh, met with Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken, who wrote the score, 
we had an outline up on a board and we talked about musical moments. And Stephen and Alan, uh, it was actually Stephen who came up with the idea of Colors of the Wind to articulate the pivotal moment between John Smith and Pocahontas. And it was the first song written for the movie. And uh, when that demo came in, sung by Judy Kuhn, it was a very inspiring moment for all of us. And it was probably the first moment we all felt, boy, we've really got something here. And we knew what the film was about. We knew what, the, what, what it was going to be centered about. You know, recording uh, this, uh, the orchestration of this particular song by Danny Trube, this huge orchestra who re re in the recording session, it was just an inspiring moment. Everybody loved this song. I think a number of story artists and even Eric and I each did our own version storyboarding it. So it's, it sort of was a combination of a lot of uh, storyboard versions that we ended up with. Yeah, I think the one we arrived at, you know, with lots of collaboration was a great one. I just want to mention this scene here, partially inspired by Glenn's uh, charcoal storyboards. Uh, and he always wanted to animate something in charcoal. I said, well, here's the place to do it. So uh, he actually animated that scene of Pocahontas transforming from the wind in charcoal and then it was uh, color modeled and uh, blended into the rest of the scene. One of the great things about animation is you don't have to be literal. And I think this, this particular uh, sequence, the musical number, the storyboarding and the animation is uh, special, is what you can do in animation, which is so wonderful. It's just beautiful to look at. Well, Mike Giamo really depicting what goes on in Pocahontas' mind is um, sort of what makes that visualization work. It's a reflection, it's a, it's a, it takes it beyond what is reality and shows what her inside view is, which is what a good song should do. Also, Stephen and Alan, you know, deservedly, you know, won an Academy Award for this song, as well as Alan uh, winning an Academy Award for the scoring of this movie. And one of the great things about this particular song is the characters end up in a different place at the end of the song than where they were at the beginning of the song. It really is a journey, and it actually moves the storytelling along. You could not just lift this song out of the film because the characters really have made a journey together. She's changed John Smith's thinking. You can see the end shot was with the gun being left to the side. This was the first test scene of John Smith and Pocahontas animated and still remained in the movie. What is it? It's a drum. We had our gong show. If it, I think it was probably the first gong show. What we call a gong show is where anybody with an idea for a movie in the animation department gets to go in front of Michael Eisner and Roy Disney and uh, Jeffrey and Katzenberg and Peter Schneider at the time and, and pitch your idea. And uh, I pitched the idea as uh, I had written out a little thing on the back that uh, an Indian princess is torn between her love for a European invader or settler and her uh, father's wishes to destroy them. So it was a Romeo and Juliet story. So I pitched it just like that and about that long. And Eisner and uh, Jeffrey and Roy, everybody loved it immediately. And walking out of that meeting, it was already greenlit. That was probably the fastest yeah, greenlit in history. I was there, and I've never seen anything like it in my life. 
Conditions in Jamestown are getting worse. They haven't found gold. It's raining. It's miserable. They're scared that they might be attacked. And Ratcliffe, of course, is nowhere to be found, sitting up in his tent, sort of being served. So we see the growing frustration that the settlers have. And Ben is the character to really voice it. You know, he's tired, he's cold, he's wet, and he thinks Ratcliffe is just sitting in his tent all day, having a great time of it. Cut to Ratcliffe going, undoomed, and uh, realizing that he is going to be in very, very deep trouble if he doesn't find the gold that he has told King James exists here. And the men, because they will have nothing to show for their efforts. Billy Connolly is such a funny guy, and Lon doesn't get the laughs that he should have gotten. I think we designed him too dark, too serious looking. I mean, I think I was now pushing him. Now you tell me. Yeah, you, probably wanted, you probably wanted to do it more comical. Well, we had, we had a design that kind of looked like Billy Connolly yeah. for Ben. I think I did push it in that direction. It was a mistake. Because <laughs> you, you got to make a comic character look comic. You can't really make him look like he's a dark figure or a dark villainous kind of a guy. So nobody believed that he was light and comic. They always were suspect of him, I think. By force, then, won't I? I love him cleaning his ear with his finger. <laughs> How many dads does that remind us of? <laughs> I love the uh, subtlety of expression on uh, Ratcliffe's face here uh, when he tells them to go out and find John Smith, and he says, that's what guns are for, and then turns very angry. <laughs> The old laconic moose coonskin cap joke works every time. <laughs> Is this a Joe Grant? Uh, actually, it was Eric. me. It was, it was you. I remember it well. I was sick one day, and he put that on the board. <laughs> I could, could never get it out, and it got a good laugh. Cute idea. You should be inside the village. We'll be all right. This is probably a good place to uh, talk about Nakoma, uh, Pocahontas' uh, best friend. And um, she really does serve uh, a lot of interesting uh, purposes in the story. First of all, she's someone for Pocahontas to, to talk to, but she's pivotal in the plot later on in the film, which really starts the entire a snowball rolling of the conflict between the two sides because she's really trying to protect Pocahontas. She's a good enough friend to Pocahontas to know that something is up here, and now she is put in the position of having to lie for her as soon as Kokolom arrives. Uh, it's not an easy thing for her to do. Obviously, she's uh, frightened you know, because all she's heard is that these uh, these white guys who have landed are, uh, are uh, you know, out to uh, make things horrible for them. But she covers for her friend. Tony DeRosa was the lead animator on that character. And uh, Michelle St. John does the voice. She was, we actually found her by auditioning her for Pocahontas. But um, we used someone else, Irene, for that speaking part. And uh, Michelle got this part. We liked her so much. And Jim Falls was the voice of Kokolom. We were tempted. We didn't, but we were tempted to stick Aladdin's lamp uh, in the middle of uh, Miko's horde there as we pan across to the map. But saner minds prevailed. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we tried not to be cheap. You know, it's... Uh, it's you know, I like being cheap. Worked for Jack Benny. It works. Here, we have lots of it. Gold. No, no. Gold. Hey, the other thing we introduce here... You say Jack Benny and he's pinching on it. You say there you go, okay? You know? The other thing we introduce here is the corn, which is really the true gold of Virginia, and uh, was something that the English had never really tasted or were aware of. And in this scene, as Pocahontas and John Smith get to know each other better, Pocahontas feels confident enough to introduce John Smith to the grandmother Willow. Of course, he's never seen a talking tree. I love Mel's readings on these lines in this part. What was that? Did you see something? No, no. I just, uh, I, I didn't see anything. Did I? Look again. I'd just like to uh, mention right here, you know, looking at the close-ups of these characters, some of the unsung heroes in the animation process, and that's the cleanup artists. Um, Nancy Kniep and Renee Holt uh, were our heads of cleanup. And at the time, this was the most unforgiving, difficult-to-draw movie ever done at Disney's. You know, there's nothing forgiving in it. All the characters are angle, all the expressions are subtle, all the drawings are close together, and uh, they, uh, they did a marvelous job uh, of maintaining that throughout the whole film. And he's handsome, too. As far as the process goes, uh, the rough animators really put down the performance, like Glenn Keane or John Pomeroy, uh, they put down the performance and really the, uh, the essence of the drawing but it's not clean enough to actually go through the computer in order to be uh, scanned and painted. And so that's where the cleanup artists come in, but that doesn't mean that they are non-creative. Really, the other job that they have is taking all of the disparate animators' drawings, because sometimes we'll have, you know, 12 people in a unit working on the same character and really making them all look like the same character throughout the entire movie. It's quite a job, and we're asking, in this case, people to be very conscious not just of putting a character on model, but the rigorous design involved as well and, and, uh, and keeping that uh, consistent. Well. I haven't had this much excitement in 200 years. What am I doing? Her hair getting braided was animated by Glenn at the early on, uh, just doing a test animated scene. Well, we showed that to the marketing and the merchandising people, and they went back and made a doll that had Miko braiding her hair. Back in those days, that was very rare. It was the only influence the, the merchandise had on the film, because they said, gee, we wish that braid scene was in the movie. This was a great transition, I think, uh, from the forest to the arrival of, I guess, reinforcements. Uh, the score was very dynamic. And I also think the colors here are just yeah. beautiful in terms of the Native American world. One thing that was really huge contribution of Mike Giamo's was that although we're telling a very, very serious story, he is not using a very dull color palette. Uh, you know, he's using a very emotional color palette. and. That really brings to the story a much more vivid visualization of uh, what the characters are going through. Russell Means played Powhatan. Irene Bedard played the speaking voice of Pocahontas. Uh, 
Uh, we did a lot of uh, exhaustive casting sessions to cast Native Americans in the roles uh, whenever possible, and I think for the most part we did. You would listen to him, wouldn't you? Pocahontas. Wouldn't you? Of course I would. We did have one, one person come in, I'm not going to name who it was, uh, of higher level saying, so where's all the teepees? Where's the teepees? Where's the feathers? And it's like, they didn't have them. <laughs> they didn't have them, so they're not in the movie. Little Joe Grant comic section here. That was his idea. Poor person. Don't we all feel like that someday? <laughs> now, this is an interesting section here. Um, because it actually played out, I think, one of the more serious themes in the movie. On the one hand, John Smith, unknowingly, uh, other than just trying to help Thomas out, tells him how to shoot. And on the other hand, Ratcliffe berates Thomas and says he's never going to be a man until he learns to shoot. Uh, and so Thomas is torn. He wants to do right, he wants to be a good soldier, and so he does all the, uh, the things that he's supposed to do dutifully, but it ultimately backfires on him later in the film. And it's really the question of what really does constitute being a man. Does a gun help you be that? I met one of them. You what? It's knowing when to pull the trigger and when not to pull the trigger. We can see now that John Smith is turned the corner, uh, and Pocahontas has had a great influence on him. He's trying to influence the other men who, have, by this point, are very suspicious that Ratcliffe really does not know what he's talking about. You'll notice that uh, Ratcliffe also has a huge barrel chest here, and that was really a conscious design change. Originally, we were handling Ratcliffe as a more comic character, uh, and so he had a huge belly. Uh, so amongst other design changes, we kind of moved his belly up into his chest in order to make him quite formidable rather than comic. And I say, anyone who so much as looks at an Indian without killing him on sight will be tried for treason and hanged. In seeing this film some eight years after you know, it was released, I am once again impressed by the visual uh, excellence uh, just that scene of Pocahontas running, it, it, there are a lot of visual surprises, and I think Mike and Eric and their team constantly were looking for ways to uh, surprise and entertain an audience, and uh, in a story that could have been somewhat static, and it just is, it's just beautiful to look at. Thanks, Jim. I mean it. I like this film. <laughs> <laughs> What if Smith is right? What if there is no gold? One thing I'd like to mention here, which I don't see in a lot of animated films, and I think we were very conscious of, was the use of lighting to help delineate the mood in the scene and also direct your eye to interesting compositions. Some are silhouettes. We can see John almost disappearing into the blackness. And here... We really play the drama as Ratcliffe comes up behind Thomas and just that thin strip of light between uh, Ratcliffe and Thomas here 
that really emphasizes that uh, Thomas is in the uh, hot seat, so to speak. And uh, Russell and uh, and uh, Mike Giamma were particularly good at uh, utilizing light as a compositional element throughout the film. It's a very, very important part of it. Kokum. What is it? We also didn't want to make Kokum an unsympathetic character. He actually really does care for Pocahontas. Mm -hmm. You know, he's really just trying to defend her the, the way he sees fit uh, and, uh, and uh, defend his people the way he sees fit. Um, he may be stoic, he may be unsmiling, but he's not a bad guy. Um, and I think it's those shades of gray in the characters that I think we all found interesting. We didn't want to delineate anybody as, you know, all good, all pure, all this, all that. That's the strangest creature I've ever seen. Person. This was a scene where we uh, thought we wanted a musical number. And there were a number of attempts that Alan and Stephen made to write a musical number for this, for this moment in the, in the glade. One, we thought maybe we wanted the grandmother Willow to sing. Uh, but ultimately, I think they tried three or four different songs. First One to of, dance, middle of the river. Right for, yes, first to dance, middle of the river. Yeah, all different ones. One of the most beautiful songs was mid, In the Middle of the River. It's a great song. Uh, but it just never seemed the time to stop and sing. Um, and also, we ran out of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the drama had gone too far down the road. It was just, we were building tension and building the, the, the violence that's to come. And so going for the light moment, it was too late to go to that real light place. We actually discovered that the moment for that song would have been the first time John Smith met Pocahontas. Right. But that was after the movie was released. <laughs> so thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll make it again someday. <laughs> Maybe in CGI. <laughs> You'll notice the color starting to shift once Kokoom and Thomas enter the scene. It goes from these pastel blues and soft hues into an escalating uh, range of reds and angles and diagonals in the background. You'll notice it through this entire section. Introduce the angle just to tilt the camera, then you'll see the shafts of light in the background, a little bit of red in that shot. Here come the stronger reds, like a knife right through Kokoom's body, and on and on it gets stronger and stronger. The scene where Thomas has to fire the gun wasn't quite working. It was because we had the phrase, both eyes open, much earlier in the sequence. And so in editorial, it was decided that we should put that just before Thomas pulls the trigger, which really gave impact and irony to the lesson that John Smith had given Thomas about how to fire a gun. I think it's one of the most powerful moments in the movie when he falls backward into that water. Just really an, a unique moment in animation. 
Scoring is one of the funnest parts for an animation director, I certainly, to go in and watch what music has been written for your section of the movie. And when this was playing, it was just pumping along and just so exciting. And I was stunned when Coco is finally shot and falling backwards. Alan's choice was to have nothing there. And it just sucked the air out of you. It was just a powerful uh, moment. I'm still sort of moved every time I see it. We had a Native American loop group come in uh, and actually provide the uh, laments and chanting uh, for uh, Kokwam's friends carrying him off back to the village. Pretty rare you see a dead body in a Disney animated film, so this was, I think we carried it off, so to speak, in the right kind of mood. Here's the turning point in the uh, Miko and little Percy relationship, where he's so scared and Miko takes pity on him and they actually befriend each other here. So they're starting to show a little signs of hope in the uh, two worlds coming together while the necklace comes apart and Pocahontas's world is shattered symbolically there with the necklace. Pocahontas is well aware that this is going to escalate uh, the tension uh, and I think there's a sense of desperation uh, about what is going to happen. I think this is enormously powerful animation by Ruben Aquino as he confronts Pocahontas for disobeying uh, him and dishonoring uh, her people. Look at the honesty in the eyes on Powhatan there. Look at the performance there. He is just feeling it. And without any flash, he's not overacting it, he's just beautifully sending that message. That's such a sincere performance. So there's Pocahontas left all alone bereft. And guess who's there? The Big Mouth. <laughs> it's her fault. She was only trying to help her. I know, I know. <laughs> but nevertheless. <laughs> uh, OK, she screwed it up, yeah. <laughs> because of me. And now I'll never see John Smith again. Come with me. Pocahontas wants to look into the eyes of the man who killed Kokuum. Be quick. I'm so sorry. For what? This? I've gotten out of worse scrapes than this. Can't think of any right now, but... It would have been better if we'd never met. None of this would have happened. Pocahontas, look at me. I'd rather die tomorrow than live a hundred years without knowing you. Pocahontas, I can't leave you. You never will. No matter what happens to me, I'll always be with you, forever. Easy, lad. What is it? It's Smith. They got 
got him! Who got him? The savages! Savages? They captured him, dragged him off! Where'd they take him? They headed north! How many were there? I don't know, at least a dozen. Filthy beasts! Ratcliffe was ruined! It's perfect, Wiggins. I couldn't have planned this better myself. The gold is as good as mine. We've got to save him. He'd do the same for any of us. Thomas is right. We've got to do something. And so we shall. I told you those savages couldn't be trusted. Smith tried to befriend them. And look what they've done to him. But now I say it's time to rescue our courageous comrade. At daybreak, we attack! What can you expect from filthy little heathens? Here's what you get when races are diverse. The skins are hellish red. They're only good when dead. Here's where uh, Mike Giamo and his color team go nuts. And they really pull out all the stops and, and for a purpose, for, for the violence and the drama. He's held back a little bit for this moment throughout the entire film. So here it goes. You'll notice also an odd choice. Odd, I think it's just, I, I remember when I was approving some of these scenes being shocked that he was portraying the Indians as blue and the settlers as oranges and reds. It was just an, a nice counterpoint to what you might expect. Yeah, I, the first time I saw blue-violet Powhatan against the yellow flames, you know, coming up in color dailies uh, after you guys had seen it, uh, I just went, okay. You guys know what you're doing. <laughs> and absolutely, you did. It's just beautiful. Uh, and it really, it really gives testament to the fact that you don't have to use a sedate color palette in order to make something powerful and dramatic. Um, the, the guts Giamo showed in this section, just guts. And at least we had the good sense not to muck it up, huh? Yep. <laughs> This was a Joe Grant image, I believe, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Clouds, yeah, on the sh clouds with shadows on them, clashing. So we can have a precursor to the battle ahead. Quick time out, Grandmother Willow. You have to stop them. I can't. Child, remember your dream. I was wrong, Grandmother Willow. I followed the wrong path. I feel so lost. <laughs> Now, all of Miko's scavenging actually comes to some good. The compass. Our writers came up with this concept. I remember reading it for the first time on the page. Carl Binder and Susanna Grant and Phil Lezebnik of the spinning arrow, and that's the arrow. We, we always thought that was in pretty early and it stuck through the whole movie. It was one of the foundations of the story. Everything all kind of wraps together here in a nice way. You've got dramatic lighting starting to come in, the re revealing of the compass and her mother's spirit in the leaves, all leading her to where she has to go. One direction. This is a pretty powerful cutting section. Editors did a great job. Not only is it visually beautiful, but musically, it takes uh, uh, it, all the various themes and everyone singing, it's sort of uh, reminiscent of the quintet in West Side Story as all of the, the forces are coming together. And uh, it's really quite powerful. It's quite a, a skillful weave by the music team. Please don't let it be too late. 
I hope people can tell that's a waterfall that they're in. It's a, it's a little obscured by the image of the people. She's certainly doing a lot of running. <laughs> an interesting uh, side note. Uh, obviously, the climax of the movie is Pocahontas saving John Smith's life. But that wasn't always the way the movie was structured. No, uh, we, at one we, point, we, it was structured that was the end of the first act of the movie. And as I remember it, it was Glenn Keane who felt very strongly that it needed to end the movie. And um, He did a nice pencil sketch of that scene and it just kind of sold the point that you're never going to get a more powerful moment in your movie than this and this is the quintessential Pocahontas John Smith moment and uh, he kind of stopped arguments and we went that way we restructured it and uh, in fact the rest of the movie sort of fell into place when this became the end Now you can see the colors changing from the intense oranges and reds with the mother spirit and the leaves softening the hue and softening the anger. Here's another example how a score takes uh, something visual and elevates it to another level. Emotionally, it's a very uh, powerful scene. From this day forward, there is to be more killing it will not start. Once the club has dropped, the leaves all relax too. The deed is done, you know, the tension is broken. This was not a fun film for anybody to work on because it was challenging and demanding and drove everybody crazy and, and everybody, I hope, feel rewarded for having worked on it. That is absolutely true. I think the challenges of it, even though it wasn't in the broader sense fun, I think everyone felt that they had achieved something special. It's a trick, don't you see? Fire! I love that little tremble on the sword that just says, I'm so frustrated with all of you that I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And watch the clouds go jagged here as Pocahontas is heading towards the fallen John Smith, just to emphasize the uh, drama of the moment. It's his own fault. Smith was right all along. We never should have listened to you. Get the guy. Oh, 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 I think Thomas is really successful in this movie. He's just a, you know, he's a, he's a wonderful secondary character that just has so much internal turmoil and decisions to be made. I mean, I, and he gets caught between the, the two worlds in just a beautiful way. He's really in the vice grip. I think it's a very compelling performance. And uh, let's mention his lead animator, Ken Duncan. The sooner he gets back to England, the better. At one point, we talked about doing this farewell in a uh, light snow on the ground. We chose not to go there. It seemed a little superficial or uh, for no purpose. I mean, this is one of the issues that certainly came up about the historical accuracy of the movie. And we had to make a choice of how to end this story. From what is known, uh, John Smith uh, was wounded and sent back to England. Uh, but it's most likely that Pocahontas did not, she thought he was dead. But that was not a particularly satisfying, you know, it ending. Was, yeah, it was more of an inadvertent or, or historians 
most suspect that it was his own men that did it because he had a few enemies in the camp of Jamestown. So they think they, while he was sleeping in a canoe, his, they lit his gunpowder on his side and burned a bad hole on his side. But I think we were trying to capture the essence of the characters of John Smith and Pocahontas and uh, the effect that they had. And so uh, to make the film more dramatically satisfying, uh, we made certain choices. And as far as her, uh, Pocahontas being old enough to uh, have any kind of a relationship or an, a, you know, a romantic relationship, she was 12 when she met John Smith, so certainly not when, even back then, certainly not when they first met, but she, she, we condensed this. There was a two-year span that they really got to know each other really well and really had a lot of, certainly a lot of affection. Whether it ever was romantic or not, we don't know, but we do know by the age of 14, Pocahontas actually was married to an Indian, and um, so she was certainly, um, at, at 14 back then, that was old enough to uh, have a relationship by the time Smith left. But uh, we'll have to just all make up our own minds. In fact, Smith was only 24 when this happened. and uh, 27, it, maybe? Was it 27? I think 27, yeah. Okay. Yep. It's been exaggerated further. Well, she was six years old and he was 58. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that really wasn't the case. Come with me. You must choose your own path. When Mike and Jim actually approached me to co-direct on this film, they had a beat board. And even though it was in very, very, very early stages, I could tell how powerful the message was. And one reason I could tell how powerful it was and that I felt that it was a movie that needed to be made was because it was about a week after the L.A. riots. And actually watching this tear the city apart was such a, a huge, devastating event that all of a sudden to be sitting here and watching a story about prejudice on both sides and both sides coming together, I felt we had to make this movie. It was a very, very important movie to make and a timely movie to make. And it's still a timely movie to make for those reasons. I think one of the finer kisses in Animationville. I absolutely agree with you. And there was a lot of um, controversy about how long it should last. Michael Eisner is just a little nervous about the length of that kiss. <laughs> he didn't put up too much fight. He, he, he knew it worked. And you'll notice in that scene of John Smith singing, there's a little bit of a watery eye effect we have going on. Oh, Eric, I took the tear out of... Oh, there's two <laughs> tears. There was a tear in the other eye, too. I took that out. I thought it was a little overkill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you and your tears. <laughs> no blood, no tears. But I do like sweat. <laughs> Whatever you're into. <laughs> Here's where everyone's thinking, does Disney have the guts to not have the hero and heroine end up getting married and being happily ever after? This was a, a great scoring session. This is a great score, uh, beautifully conducted by David Friedman and orchestrated by Danny Trube. And um, It's inspiring. If that doesn't give you chills when that wind hits her in the back, her mother coming through. 
then you certainly aren't going along with the movie Pocahontas. The actress doing the live action reference for this had tears in her eyes when she was performing the live action, and, and we all did watching her act this out because we do it with the music playing as we're doing it. It was just magic. If I never knew you, if I never felt this love, I would have no ink. This was great. It was great to have a kind of reunion with you two and uh, uh, view old scenes again and, uh, and be re-inspired by them again, too. We should and, do it every eight years. I uh, wonder what the next medium's going to be, like holography or something, like <laughs> 3D, Pocahontas and John Smith. We'll all get together again with the uh, next permutation, I hope. It's, it's been great. It's yep. been great fun, and hopefully you've all enjoyed the, uh, the presentation. Have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? 
not a dime.